Good morning, church, and happy Easter once more. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life. It's great to see all of your lovely, uh, bright faces on this glorious Easter morning as we uh, celebrate what is absolutely hands down the biggest event in history. Now, here's what I know to be true on a day like today. We have people here from just about every walk of life. We have people here from just about every different place imaginable on the spiritual journey spectrum. Uh, I have no doubt that many of you who are here this morning are uh, devout followers of Jesus. And so you've known and followed Jesus uh, from the youngest of ages since before you can even remember. Uh, Some of you, I have no doubt, you're here just to get your uh, mom or your wife off your back for a little while. Like, hey, mom, I'll come. Just get off my back. I'll come to Easter. Uh, Some of you, I'm just guessing maybe you're here uh, just to kind of perhaps cover your bases just in case there is a God. You know, like, man, you know, you get there. Whoop! I didn't know you were going to be here. Uh, well, God, uh, back, I was there, man. Easter 18, check your roll. I was there. Man, you got to let me in. Um, and I would just guess there are probably even others of you here who are uh, skeptics. And uh, you just don't believe any of this stuff at all. And, uh, and I get all that. I'm glad that you're here, no matter who you are, no matter why you're here. And here's the deal. Regardless of how you got here or why you rolled out of bed this morning and ended up here, I believe that God wants to speak to you this morning. I really believe it. I don't believe that you're here by accident. I don't believe that you're here this morning by coincidence, even if you think you're just here to get a a family member or a crazy coworker off your case until Easter of 2019. I believe that you're here with reason. You're here for a purpose. Now, the flip side of that coin this morning is that Uh, For guys like me, for guys who do what I do, for pastors, uh, just being completely honest with you this morning, uh, Easter is is probably the hardest Sunday of the year uh, for multiple reasons. For one reason, we know that uh, typically there are a lot of people who come that don't typically come, uh, and we get uh, emails and we have conversations with sweet people in our church, and they say things like, hey, uh, you know, my nephew is, is coming, and you know, he's, he doesn't believe in, in God. He has cancer. This is probably his last chance you know, to hear about God and respond to the gospel. And so uh, good luck, Pastor. No pressure at all. And um, thank you for that. It, it, so it can become kind of like this pressure cooker of, of, a, of a week. And, and pastors can kind of like begin to think like, man, I, <laughs> I've really got to nail this. I mean, and how can, like, how can I tell this story in like, like a new creative way because everybody has heard this story before. And so uh, let me just take the pressure off of everybody this morning and let me just admit um, I can't change anybody's mind. I'm not persuasive enough. I don't have clever enough words to do that. I certainly can't uh, transform uh, a human heart. Only God can do that. And so uh, I'm not going to do anything weird this morning. Like, I'm not going to ask you to stand up or come up here and dance a jig if you want to follow Jesus or, I mean, like anything goofy like that. So um, we can all just hopefully relax and uh, enjoy our morning together. Here, here, here would be my one encouragement to you if I could just ask you for anything, particularly if you're here and uh, you're just not sure about all this God stuff. You're not sure about all this Jesus stuff. So here, w- here would be my one encouragement to you is just, 
just to listen with an open heart and an open mind this morning. Like whatever obstacles and objections you may have to God or your negative experience in the church at some point in your life, if you could just set all that stuff, all that baggage aside mentally for the next 30, 35 minutes and just be open. Open your heart, open your mind and ask God to speak to you. And if God speaks to you, that's, that's awesome. I mean, how, how cool would that be if you hear from the God of the universe this morning? And if not, then you get to leave here in 30 minutes and go eat some good ham or hunt for some chocolate eggs or, you know, whatever you do. So it's a win-win, right? Is that fair enough? All right. Well, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and go to Matthew 27. As always, I ask you to turn in your Bibles because I want you to see that I'm not making this stuff up. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. We'll have uh, the scriptures on the screens behind me this morning. At this point in the narrative in Matthew 27, Jesus has been crucified. He's now dead, hanging on a Roman cross. His disciples are crushed and they're terrified. And you just have to imagine that they're devastated because they thought Jesus was the Messiah. They thought that Jesus was the Son of God who would deliver their people from Roman oppression, and now he's dead. So you just got to imagine that the thought going through their head right now is like, we believed a lie. We believed a lie, and now we may die with him. History tells us that most all of them are in hiding. His disciples are huddled up in a room, an upper room in Jerusalem, and they're probably thinking, like, we're next. Right? If they just executed Jesus, everybody knows we're his followers. We've been hanging out with him for the last three and a half years. They're coming after us next. And so it's into this really like depressing, dark, gloomy, scary scene that will kind of enter Matthew's narrative this morning with Jesus hanging on a cross dead. Matthew 27, we'll start in verse 57. And Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, says this. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. And so we have this wealthy disciple of Jesus who apparently had some sort of political clout, probably because of his wealth, probably because of his standing in the Jewish community. And he comes to Pilate, this Roman governor, and he says, hey, Pilate, can I have the body? Can I have the body of Jesus? And because he's got some clout in that community, Pilate grants his wish. He gives him the body of Jesus. Matthew tells us that Joseph takes the body of Christ and he wraps it for burial as would have been the custom of the day. And he puts Jesus in his own tomb. Verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, so now we're, we're into Saturday, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, We remember how that imposter, speaking of Jesus here, said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. 
Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be greater than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, we don't know how many Roman soldiers were in a guard. Some scholars suspect that it could have been uh, four. Some scholars would say it would be as many as several dozen. So we're not sure how many, but it wasn't one or two. It was a lot of guards that would have been there stationed at the tomb of this man, Jesus, who had just been executed by the Roman government. And so the, the Pharisees, these, these religious punks who had Jesus crucified, they go to Pilate and say, hey, Pilate, we just remembered that this Jesus cat, he used to teach that he was going to die, but then he was going to rise again three days later. So we're, we're just a little bit concerned that his disciples might try to sneak down there to the tomb of Joseph and take the body and then tell everybody that Jesus has risen from the dead. And Pilate says, yeah, sure, that's fine. You can take a guard of my soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can, which is to me probably one of the most hilarious verses in the entire Bible. Right? It's, almost like, it's almost like Pilate knows something is about to go down. Make it as secure as you can, boys, and hope for the best. Yeah, that's kind of, that's kind, of the, kind of the connotation that Pilate is, is saying to these Pharisaical leaders. And so now there are these Roman guards there, these uh, incredibly trained killing machines, these Roman soldiers, and they seal the stone that covers the tomb so that it, so that it couldn't be uh, rolled away easily. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 1. The story continues. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, so now we're into Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was like white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So several incredible things happen in the early dawn hours of this Sunday morning. First of all, there's this massive earthquake that happens. Now, how many of you have ever, ever experienced a great earthquake? Maybe some California people in here. So at least a handful of you have experienced an earthquake. Uh, Cheryl and I, after we got married, we moved to Indonesia uh, for a couple of years, and we were living and working over there. And uh, if, you don't, if you're not really familiar with Indonesia, it's, it's kind of in the Pacific Rim where there's lots of islands. It's called the Rim of Fire because there's so much volcanic activity in that area of the world. And so that part of the world is just rocked by earthquakes all the time. And I, I think I'd experienced an earthquake when I was like a little kid living in Chile or something like that, but I didn't really remember it. And so one night, we had just, we had just moved to Indonesia and, and we're still kind of disoriented. We don't know the language. We don't know how to get to the grocery store. We're kind of scared. We're, we're in this Muslim country. And so I'm like wondering, man, are we being followed? Are we being targeted? You know, I got this wife with blonde hair and blue eyes, and we're sticking out like sore thumbs. So I'm, I'm already on edge. And about 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, we were deep asleep one night. And all of a sudden, our bed just starts to shake, like violently. So I wake up in this sleepy stupor. And I don't know what the heck is going on. The only thing that I can think of is that an Asian man has probably broken into my home and he's under my bed rattling the bed. And I'm terrified. You know, what am I supposed to do? And so I jump out of bed. I'm thinking, man, I'm about to have to fight this Asian criminal in my boxers in the middle of the night. I mean, it was absolutely, it was terrifying. 
I just have to imagine, like, this is, this is how these soldiers, these Roman soldiers, it was absolutely terrifying. It would have been terrifying. The second amazing thing that happens is an angel shows up. Now, I've never seen an angel, but every time one shows up in scriptures, people get really afraid. And so I just have to imagine that they are quite an impressive, intimidating sight. In fact, Matthew says that the angel looked like lightning. Like that's the only way he knew how to describe what this being looked like. He said it just looked like lightning. Like his clothes were white as snow. It was this amazing sight. The combination of this earthquake and the angel was so terrifying to the Roman soldiers that Matthew says that they became like dead men, which is biblical language for they fainted like little schoolgirls. And they were just, I mean, they were just petrified, right? They, they see all this stuff. They're like, no, we're out. Boom. We hit in the ground. Just this last week, um, we took our, our three kids to go uh, go-kart riding for the first time in their, their lives, just right down the road. And, um, you know, they're two-seaters, so I had to take turns with, with each of them. And um, I'm just slightly competitive by nature. And um, so there was, there, was no, there was no chance I was losing to the other parents with kids um, in, in, their, in their cars. And so, and so we, we take off, and I'm going as, as fast as I can in this thing. I got the pedal to the metal. Everybody else is like breaking around the curves, not me. I'm like skidding around the, the curves and, and, and passing people. And Haley and Karis, they thought it was awesome. I mean, just pure, you know, screams of delight. They're like, got their hands up. I mean, they absolutely loved it. And so then the third one to go was, was, was Judah, our five-year-old son. And um, I thought he was going to love it too, for sure. And so uh, we take off out of the gates, and I'm flying. I'm going fast as I can. And we go around the first curve, and we're, like, skidding around the curve. And I look over at him, and I'm like, is he still alive? I mean, he's, the, he's, he's got, the poor little guy had his head down. He's clutching the steering wheel. His, his face, his eyes are closed. His face is red. He's holding his breath. I'm like, Judah, what's wrong? He's like, I feel like we're going to crash. <laughs> like, it's okay, buddy. It's okay. And so he slowed down a little bit. And after about a lap or two, he, he was okay. I mean, but it was just like looking at his face. It was just this moment of pure, like unfiltered terror. Like, I just imagine that is what the Roman soldiers look like. Just holding their breath, eyes closed, red face. Oh, I can't handle this. Or they just pass out, you know. They can't handle it. The two Marys get there onto the scene, and they see all of this. They see the empty tomb. Luke's gospel says that the angel says to them, Hey, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen just like he told you he would. Verse 8. So they departed, that is the Marys, departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So these women who are followers of Jesus, they're disciples of Christ, they see the resurrected Jesus, and they fall at his feet, and they worship him, which, by the way, church is the appropriate response. When you see a man alive, and he tells you that he's God, and he's going to die and come back again to prove it, and then you see him alive after he was dead, that is the only appropriate response, is to fall at his feet and worship him. And Jesus says to these disciples, these ladies whom he undoubtedly loves, he says, listen, go tell the rest of my disciples to go to Galilee because I'm going to spend some time with him there. 
Verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard, that is the Roman guards, went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. So these guards, they wake up, they see that the tomb is empty, and they're like, oh, no, 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 because they knew the price for a failed mission as a Roman guard was death. It was capital punishment. And so you can kind of picture these Roman soldiers just looking around like, man, he's got to be here somewhere. And they're looking behind the trees and they're picking up rocks. They're like, hey, check the other tombs. He's got to be here somewhere. It's just this, this scene, this picture of complete panic. And as they're panicking, fearful for their own lives, they run into the city. They go into Jerusalem. They find the Pharisaical leaders and they tell them what happened. Now what follows in this story is probably one of the most disturbing saddest stories in the entire Bible. Verse 12. And when they had assembled, that is the soldiers, with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ear, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So the soldiers take a bribe. They agree to lie about what really happened. And they concoct this story that the disciples snuck in the middle of the night and they stole Jesus' body. Which, by the way, is absolutely absurd. These disciples, who are mostly uneducated, roughneck fishermen and the like are so terrifying, they're so terrified and scared, they're in hiding. Do you remember what happened to Peter the night that Jesus was arrested? Right, it's the little teenage girl comes up to him and says, hey, I think I recognize you. You're one of his guys, aren't you? You know Jesus. And he denied Jesus not once to this teenage girl, three different times, the last time even cursing. I don't bleep and know the guy. Leave me alone. He was so scared of his, for his own life. Now, supposedly, in this story that they're concocting, these cowardly disciples supposedly all of a sudden get the courage to come to the tomb in the middle of the night, to outmaneuver these Navy SEAL Roman guards, and to break the seal, to drag the body out without anybody seeing them. I mean, it's a ludicrous story. It's absolutely insane. It's not even believable. And listen, understand this. These soldiers had seen the evidence of the resurrection right before their eyes. These soldiers believed. Intellectually, they knew the resurrection happened. There was no question in their mind. They had seen the angel. They had felt the earthquake. They had seen the empty tomb. But because they were afraid... Because they were scared of what it may cost them, they would not confess Jesus. And I just have to wonder, on a day like today, how many of you may find yourself in the same boat as these Roman soldiers? I mean, deep down, you maybe know it's true. You know there's a God. Maybe you even believe in the resurrection. But you refuse to give your life to Jesus because just like these Roman guards, you're afraid of what it may cost you. 
not realizing that all the while it's only in Jesus that you will ever find what your heart seeks. Friend, understand this. It is absolutely possible for you to intellectually believe in Jesus, to intellectually believe in the resurrection and miss Jesus entirely, just like these Roman soldiers did. In light of that truth, I'd like to just, if I could, lay a couple of questions before you for you to consider this morning. The first one is this. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? I mean, really, do you, deep down, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? If you don't, I would just lovingly submit to you this morning that you should. Last Easter, we covered many of the historical evidences for the resurrection, and the evidence is overwhelming. We're not going to get into all of that this morning because we don't have time. That message is on our website if you want to explore the evidence a little further. But here's the bottom line. Everybody has to do something with Jesus. Everybody has to do something with Jesus. Even in the Islamic Quran, it talks about Jesus a lot. Atheistic historians now almost universally accept the historical Jesus. So if you want to be an intellectually honest person, you have to do something with this Jesus guy that changed the course of history. You just do. I mean, we, we mark our calendars by this guy's life for Pete's sake. You've got to do something with this guy. The danger, I think, is that there, there's just so much noise out there in our society, in our culture, about who Jesus is. That I think for a lot of us, we just feel like it's easier just to kind of put him on the shelf. Just kind of put him on the back burner, place him with other good moral teachers, people like Mother Teresa, like Gandhi, like MLK Jr. But here's the thing that shatters all of those ideas and all of those comparisons. Jesus rose from the dead. Friend, if that's true, it changes everything. It changes everything. Now listen, I'm, I'm not typically an emotionally driven person. I'm a logical person. Now, I know some of you in the room, you can come to places like this, and you can sing songs like we just sang, and you get goosebumps, and that's enough for you. You experience God emotionally, and you're like, I'm in. I believe, and that's awesome. I love all of you emotionally driven people. I married one, but that's not, that is not how I function. It's not how I function. So if you're here and you sell essential oils or a health supplement, you better go talk to my wife. You don't, don't come talk to me, right? Because she's going to be all over it, and I'm going to need to see 14 peer-reviewed medical studies that all conclude that this $50 bottle of oil that's smaller than my thumb will cure every known disease to man. I'm just not buying it, right? At least not with overwhelming evidence. If you're an essential oil person this morning, we love you. And <laughs> Jesus loves you too. We want you to leave here feeling very affirmed. On Easter morning. Do you, do you want to know what I think is the greatest proof of the resurrection? I think the greatest proof of the resurrection, for those of you who are logic-driven people like I am, is what happens at the end of this chapter. We don't have time to read the end of chapter Matthew 28. But at the end of the chapter, Jesus tells his disciples to go to the ends of the earth with his message of hope with the message of his kingdom, to leave everything that they've ever known and go to faraway dangerous places and give their lives, to risk their lives for his name's sake. And they actually do it. 
these timid, these cowards who were huddled up in a room, shivering. After Jesus was crucified, all of a sudden, they leave everything that they know. And this is, this is historically verifiable. They, nobody argues this. They left everything they knew. They left their jobs. They left their homes. They left their friends. They left their livelihoods to go out and risk their lives. And they flipped the world on its head for Jesus. History tells us that 11 of the 12 disciples gave their lives telling people about this Jesus guy. I love this story in the book of Acts. We studied this uh, last year. After the resurrection, the disciples are going out and they're like, telling everybody that they can find about this Jesus guy. Like, man, you, you just got to know, like, God loves us so much that he sent Jesus. He paid for our sins. We can have freedom now in this life and in eternity. And he, they're telling all these people and everybody's believing. Like, thousands of people are believing and being baptized and beginning to follow Jesus. And the religious leaders get ticked off. They're angry. And so they, they grab the disciples and they drag them into court and they say, listen, you guys need to shut up about Jesus. We will beat you. We will beat you until you almost die if you don't shut up about Jesus. And you think, you would just think like these disciples, they'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. This escalated quickly. This is getting really real. Let's, okay, listen, we'll tone things down just a little bit. Just let us have a little Sunday school class in the back. And uh, we'll just tone things down. Don't break out the whips. But that's not what they said. They look at these religious leaders and they said, we cannot but speak about what we have seen and what we have heard. Amen. In other words, listen, you guys do what you got to do. If you got to beat us, if you got to kill us, you got to throw us in prison. You do what you got to do, but we cannot, we will not shut up about Jesus. We've seen too much. We saw this guy alive, then we saw him dead, and then he rose again. We will not shut up about him. We cannot. We will not. Historical tradition tells us this. Peter was actually crucified upside down at his request because he didn't feel worthy to die like Jesus. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. And as he died a slow, agonizing death for two days, he pleaded with the crowds to come and find their life and hope and freedom in Jesus. Thomas was speared to death. James was thrown off a high roof, and when he survived, they clubbed him to death. Matthew was killed by a sword wound. All of them, all of them except John, who miraculously survived being boiled alive in oil and then sent to an island of Patmos for criminals and murderers, all of them suffered and died refusing to deny the resurrection of Jesus. Now, friend, I don't know about you, but I'm not dying for a lie. I'm not dying for a lie, and neither would these guys. They saw something. They saw something that transformed not one of them, but every single one of them. They saw something that transformed them from these cowards hiding in a home into ferocious, fearless leaders so afraid of death that they refused to recant the resurrection of Jesus, even facing death. 
friend, there is only one thing that can explain that type of transformation, and that is a resurrected Jesus. They were willing to stake their lives on what they saw. And so either they were all lunatics or they saw Jesus die and rise again. It's that simple. One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. He was an atheist who became convinced by the evidence of the resurrection, became a follower of Jesus. And um, some of you guys may have heard this quote, but I want to read it to you because I think it's really good. Lewis said this. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Friend, you have to do something with Jesus. You have to come to terms with these eyewitness accounts that gave their lives willingly for the resurrection of Jesus. We have two groups of people in this story. We have the Roman guards and we have the disciples of Christ. Both groups believed. Both groups saw with their own eyes and yet their responses were completely different. So here's the last question. I just kind of want to lay before you this morning and listen to me. This is the most important question that you will answer in your entire life and it is this. How will you respond to Jesus? you got to respond somehow. And understand this, a non-response is a response. You've got to do something with this guy. And you say, man, I think I believe. Like, I think I believe in God and a higher power and goodness and all that kind of stuff. That's awesome. That's step one. But remember, the Roman guards believed too. And they sold out and they missed the whole thing. You can intellectually believe something is true and not give yourself to it. I know, I did that for years and years and years myself. Friend, listen, if Jesus is alive, if that tomb is really still empty, and I want you to know I believe that with all of my heart. I believe that that tomb is empty, and I believe that he's alive today. That changes everything. Changes everything. And please understand this. This isn't about religion. What I'm talking about right now, this is not about religion. Listen, this is the tragedy of religion. I'm just guessing many of you have tried religion. And you were like me. You figured out pretty quickly that you weren't good at keeping all the rules. See, religion says, hey, hey here's a list of good things and here's a list of things that will make God love you. 
And here's the second list. These are the things that you're not supposed to do. These are the things that are going to make God mad at you, make God hate you. And most of you are like me. You figured out that you were way better at doing things on the bad list than the good list. And so maybe some of you just kind of figured, well, I guess God doesn't, doesn't love me. He's not pleased with me. Maybe he even hates me. So a lot of you just bailed, and I don't blame you for that. I'm afraid that many of us have equated religion with Jesus. Listen, religion will kill you, friend. Of course you can't follow all the rules. If you could, Jesus wouldn't have had to come and die on the cross. Jesus and his kingdom is a free gift, but like the Roman guards, you can choose to believe and even still reject it. In 1829, this is a true story. 1829, a man by the name of George Wilson was convicted to die for a crime that he committed. He was subsequently pardoned by the United States President Andrew Jackson. He was given a full pardon. Inexplicably, George Wilson turned down the pardon, and nobody knew what to do. They were like, man, what, is, it, is it even legal for him to turn down this pardon? Like, do, can we even accept it? So the argument went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1829. And I want to read to you the decision of the U.S. Supreme Court. This is what the court said. The court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon unless he claims the benefit of it. It is a grant to him. It is his property, and he may accept it or not as he pleases. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote this. He said, A pardon is an act of grace, but delivery is not completed without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and we have no power in a court to force it on him. George Wilson was executed by hanging in 1829. A fully free, forgiven man, hung from the gallows, with a pardon in his back pocket. Friend, you've been granted a pardon. Jesus purchased your freedom on the cross and then he walked out of that tomb to prove it to you. And so the question this morning is, how will you respond? As we close this morning, I want to just invite you to bow your heads with me for about two minutes. This isn't anything religious, like we don't get bonus points for God from God for bowing our heads. I just want you to, to be able to focus on what God may be telling you this morning. I want to read to you the words from the Apostle Paul. Paul, who, by the way, was a Jesus hater. He persecuted Christians. He had Christians killed until he met Jesus. Jesus revolutionized his life, and he became one of the most ferocious leaders in the early church movement. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote to believers who were suffering in Rome. And he's telling them how to respond to Jesus. This is how you respond. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be saved. Not, man, you can hope one day that you might get in on your good works. You will be saved. Paul goes on to say, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses 
and is saved. In the Gospels, Jesus himself said this. He said, come to me. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened in this life, and I will give you rest. Jesus invites you into his kingdom. He invites you into his story. Friend, you you must respond to Jesus. You can't just put this on the shelf and pretend like nothing happened. You've got to deal with this. This Easter morning in 2018, today can be the day that changes the rest of your days. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in the completed work of Jesus on the cross for you, I'm inviting inviting you, I'm pleading with you this morning to believe and confess Jesus today. Not tomorrow, not when you think you've got your life all figured out and sorted out, you've got yourself cleaned up. Friend, the reality is none of us are promised tomorrow. The reality is some of us won't be here next Easter. For some of you, this will be your last chance to hear and respond to the good news that Jesus loves you so much that he gave himself for you. And this is your chance to respond. Jesus rose from the dead so that we would never have to fear death again. The pardon is yours. But friend, you've got to reach out and take it. You've got to believe and confess. If you feel that that tug in your heart right now, like if your heart is just starting to beat a little bit faster in your chest, the Holy Spirit's just working on you. I just want to ask you to to pray this prayer with me, right in the silence of your own head and your heart. Just Just pray this. God, here's your heart. Just say, God, I need you. God, I need you. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I really believe it. Maybe I believe it for the first time right now. So God, would you please forgive me of my sin? Do you forgive me of my rebellion against you? I accept the pardon. I accept the pardon that Jesus bought for me with his own blood. And Jesus, I give my, I give my life to you. From this day until I breathe my last breath on this planet, I am yours. Yours. 